Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 239 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday night, July 10th. It's 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I am not in Austin. Where are you, Steve? Where in the world is Steve Vladek? <laughs> Somewhere where it's not 111 freaking degrees. That's where. It's only 111 here if you count this completely made up real fuel thing that all the meteorologists use to get us even more exercised about the weather forecast. Well, all it's I know is the 104. All I know is the real feel and the actual ambient air temperature where I am, Richmond, yeah. Massachusetts, is 67 right now. So Ooh. suck it, Bobby. That sounds so cold. Episode title. Cold. Yeah. Hold on. I'm writing that down. Suck it, Bobby. You know, <laughs> my kids are going to find that later and, and be like, what? What is happening here? Okay. I, I will aim to do better with an episode title between now and when we're done. That's our task is to outdo Suck It, Bobby, as the title for episode 239. Um, many a new listener who are encountering this podcast are thinking, are, are these really national security law experts? Wait, do we still get new listeners? Actually, that's a really good question. I mean, Chris, we haven't we, ha- we haven't recorded in you know what? Uh, it's not quite days. a month. It's not quite a month. Twenty nine days. Yeah. <laughs> um, friends, if you are a brand new listener, you've never listened to this before, and this is your first time listening to this, send us a note. Reach out to us. We're easy to find. Uh, email, Twitter. I guess are, you on thre- are you on Threads? Are you on Threads? Well, I was rough five minutes until I found out. Okay, okay. time for our first digression. Would it with all that other stuff from digressions? Would it kill them to have me able to just see post from the people I'm following? Because well, as near as I can is, tell, yes. I have to only look at their crazily inaccurate ideas for content I might be interested in. So I'm not enjoying threads. No, no, sir. But probably no. the the more you post and the more you engage with other posts, the more you will train the algorithm about which put which which threads. You are and are not interested in. Mm, who's being trained here, the algorithm or me? <laughs> well, there is that. Um, <laughs> my question is, what is it? What is a th- so if the if the first post is a thread, what do we call the combination of posts? Is that a, a thread thread? Well, is no, that a- it's a tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> but so your point about we we, we do have tapestries. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me you've seen Indiana Jones. I have not yet. Oh, you're killing me. What are we supposed to talk about when we do get past the technical stuff to the quality? I can't believe you've not seen that yet. Okay, please go see it. We've got Yes, to yes this is a castle. And yes, we do have tapestries. But if you are a Scottish laird. Oh, man. So good. I am Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and if you don't know. Shame on you, because you ought to know and be able to recognize lines from Indiana Jones 3, The Last Crusade. Um, well, Steve, I will do, tell do you, you know, Do you know that they filmed four on Yale's campus? No, wonder, law school? no wonder Yale doesn't talk about that. The, um, the, 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 no, but like the, you know the motorcycle chase in um, Crystal Skull? Unfortunately, yes. That's that's right across the, the old campus, at, or uh, cross campus. It's right, it's right across cross campus at Yale. The only scene worth even being aware of in Crystal Skull, I would argue, is is when uh, Shia LaBeouf first shows up and they're in the bar and there's kind of a well-choreographed thing where they're throwing the, the mugs of beer around and then a fight breaks out. That's it. The rest of it is a total nightmare. And I you wish... Like any, you, you didn't like Harrison Ford uh, uh, um, getting uh, uh, um, uh, flown around in a refrigerator to survive oh, a nuclear blast? 
Yeah. Look, I, I too have survived many a nuclear blast <laughs> by just closing the door on a refrigerator and then surviving a thousand mile, you know, or thousand foot, you know, launch Fire in that refrigerator. Yeah. Hey. Uh, it's not the original, it's not Raiders, it's not Last Crusade, but I would argue it's better. It's, it's obviously better than Crystal Skull. It's, it's, I think, better than Temple of Doom. It's a solid middle contribution to the series. Okay, but here's here's the question. So let's suppose that at some point in the near future, this isn't going to happen, but let's suppose I have a window where I can go to a movie by myself because no one else in my family is going to want to see this. Do I go see Indiana Jones or do I go see Oppenheimer? Answer, Barbie. <laughs> well, Bar no, because Barbie, I can get the I can get the girls to go see Barbie. Okay, fair. Um, um, I think you you have to if you had to choose, I I was about to say like for matters of cultural uh, significance, you got to go. You owe it to Indiana. You owe it to Indy to go see his movie. <laughs> On the other hand, however, the claim is that the. Uh, the big screen will be particularly relevant and spectacular for uh, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. So yeah. I'm with yeah. you on that. Oh, right. Decisions, Bobby. I mean, fortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, this is not a choice I expect to have at any point in the near future. So, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, if, if any of this is still in theaters, when you return to Austin, I will go see these films with you. Excellent. Um, we, we should probably, since we didn't say it at the outset, we should probably like put it in the show title Skip ahead to the six minute mark if you don't want to hear us rambling about personal stuff. That actually would be a pretty great show title, some mm. version of that. Um, it is now the six minute mark. So let me say, and we did not do that on purpose. Um, we've got a number of great things to talk about, interesting things to talk about. Um, these include, uh, we will talk about an important Fifth Circuit decision relating to the National Guard. We mm. will talk about uh, a what a the latest installment in a series of Charlie Savage New York Times articles over time that give us our rare glimpses into how the administration thinks about the uh, the policy constraints on what remains the law of armed conflict model of the global war on terrorism, understood to include at least Al Qaeda and its successors like the Islamic State. So we'll check in on that uh, old chestnut. Uh, we will talk about Steve. Are we, we going to talk about Judge Dowdy? And uh, the the social media slash government don't talk to any social media platforms ruling. I hereby enjoin anyone in the government from talking to any social media company about anything. Okay, the best there there was a there was a post on Twitter. I think it was Scott Anderson. Apologies if it wasn't whoever did this, but it was someone said like this whole thing has strong vibes of or strong energy of, and then it had the whole office thing where Michael Scott comes out and is like, I declare bankruptcy. It did kind of have that sort of like, okay, we're overdoing this here kind of vibe. We'll get into exactly, I, I'm sure we agree on that, that it was overdoing it. We'll talk about the where's and why's and what for's of that. Um, maybe some I smell I, I smell shadow docket. Uh, indeed, indeed, you do. Uh, we'll check in on book sales too. Uh, let's do that right now. Um, how, how's shadow docket doing? Great. Is there a uh, is there a are you plateaued with a steady sale total each week, or has it begun to? Are is it taking off? Is it going down? Um, it has. So it, it's been relatively steady with some interesting sort of peaks and drops. Um, I think those mostly correspond to sort of events that I'm doing. Um, 
right? So like I did an event at Baker Botts in Austin and they were kind enough to buy like a copy for every single summer associate anywhere at Baker Botts in the country. So I, I signed 93 yes. copies for Baker Botts. Okay, Baker Botts, one day I will finish my book and I will remember that. <laughs> That'll be my I the one spike you. in sales I get. There is no way that a his yeah, for longtime listeners may remember I've described this before, and you probably will laugh that I've not written an additional word since I last described it. But I too have a book. It's just not been worked on for many, many years. Um, but dear publishers, I am planning to get back to that very soon, and it will be not as salesy. As Shadow Docket, that is for sure. Um, actually, you know, it's funny. I haven't actually looked at the sales numbers in in a little bit of time. Um, so you are you are encouraging me to do something I ought not to be doing. But no, I'm no, you got to do it. I'm, I'm eager to know. I'm eager to know too. Like you must be getting smart on all these tricks of the trade, or at least the lore of the published author. So I, I will say. So I will say. I will say this to you, and I guess to everyone listening. Um, <laughs> all five of us. <laughs> so I've, I've gotten some emails, Bobby, from some of our faculty. Fourteen thousand people who listen. Uh, indeed. Um, so I've gotten I've gotten some emails from some of our faculty colleagues, like advice for my next book, and I'm like, and I'm like, guys, I love you, and I love your work. I, I'm not sure that a, a deep exegesis of the next generation of multi district litigation is going to warrant the same kind of publicity and marketing the interest. Raw of broccoli is going to take off, and that you can get a nice credit from a colleague. But you also, never, like, like, how do you, you never would have thought when you undertook this, you never would have thought that it was going to hit the moment the way that it did. That's true. No, that is true. I mean, I think, I think, right. Um, mm -hmm. it was, it's hard to think of in retrospect a better time to have had the book drop. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm actually looking at the figures now, and yeah, things are things are not falling off the cliff as much as I thought they would. That's awesome. Uh, well, so, hey, uh, I mean, basically, if you, if, if you look at the graphic, there was a big spike right the first couple of weeks. And then it fell down, but actually, it has not. the The derivative is no longer very negative. Oh, very interesting! It turns out you you're, are you going to be like dark side of the moon, just year in and year out, kind of lurking around in the sales charts, and eventually accumulating this massive total. Um, yeah. I doubt. I doubt it'll be that. that. You and I might have different definitions of massive, my friend. <laughs> well, I guess we should get into it, and then we'll return to frivolity at the end. Who knows what we're going to talk about? Apparently, not Indiana Jones, which frustrates me, but we can talk about all-star breaks. We're not talking about the Mets. <laughs> we certainly won't talk about the Mets. Wait, do the Mets have anybody in the all-star game? I don't even know. Uh, they have two players in the all-star game. Ooh, let's see. Okay, Bobby. Pete Alonso is one of them. All right. I, I will bet a fair amount of money that you will never guess who the second Met all-star is. You're only saying that because in the you can see the video and you can see my hands are not on the keyboard. Uh you know, try to, I, also, I, tr I trust you not to cheat. Well, true. I, I am the non-cheating type. Um, second one. Is it so, there's <laughs> so it's not it's not Nemo. He's sitting like 240-something. Yeah, yeah. um, it, it, sh it should have been Francisco Lindor, but he, he was out. He was just edged out for reserve by the who is the Diamondbacks uh, shortstop. Yeah. Well, they're having a year. so that makes Yeah, sense. but we just swept them. Um, Too late. <laughs> True. Uh, so it's not Lindor. It's not Alonzo. It's not Nimmo. No, no, you got it's me. Not, it's not Verlander. It's not Scherzer. It's not David Robertson. It's not Starling Marte. Right, I, I got it. It's Gary Carter. So, you know, Francisco Alvarez, given how productive he's been, would not have been a bad choice. Um, all right. Are you sitting down? Yeah. 
Kodai Senga. Really? Yes, really. <laughs> I was not going to guess that. But, um, but hey, by the way, this, this is what happens when Bobby and I don't record for a month, is that we have so much to catch up on that, like, you know, <laughs> it's not just that we haven't recorded for a month, it's that we haven't seen each other in the better exactly. part of a month. No, this is so great. It's so nice to catch up. That's, I, look, I love, as I know you do too, and all faculty do, we love the cycles of the academic life where it, it is not the same thing month to month. And the biggest difference, of course, is the downtime of summer. It's not, by the way, it's not actually downtime from a work perspective. We just do different work, but we don't see each other all the time. Um, oh, and I'll, I'll add this. Uh, now, this is my second summer as a dean. And I thought I was going to get so much writing done in the summer. No, it is exactly the same job in the summer because I don't teach either way. It doesn't affect me really much at all. And that's kind of a bummer. Um, I need a vacation. <laughs> Maybe to Massachusetts. What did you say the temperature was? 67. Uh, wait, it's down. Oh, nope, it's down 66. How, do you have a guest room? And notice how he quiet there, y'all. He didn't say a thing in response to that. Wait, before we started recording, I said you have to come up I next know, summer. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You didn't specify I was standing at your house, though. Um, well, right. I, that, that, that remains to be seen. That, that, you know, uh, <laughs> that depends on how our, our salary negotiations so you're, wait, you're waiting for next year's raises to be announced. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. That's so you great. You can stay at a hotel, buddy. <laughs> I'm sure we have many alumni in the area. I'll go stay with them. Um Actually, I wonder if we have many alumni in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. That is a question. I will find out. Okay. And if you're listening and that category fits you, I will say this. When we did an alumni event in London about a month ago, you know, we had a couple dozen people turn out. That was pretty awesome. That's London, the financial capital of the world. I mean, I, listen, I love, Berkshire County, I love Berkshire County, Massachusetts. It is not exactly a thriving legal metropolis. I was thinking more in terms of summer homes. Oh, okay. Well, that's a separate <laughs> issue. Um, yeah, the summer home population might get us over the over the. That over might the do edge. it. And I may have to add myself to it soon. Uh, okay. Indeed. All right. Let's get let's get cracking. Why don't we go? Uh, I'll go first. I want to talk about the Charlie Savage story on yes. the playbook. The, there's so many different names at this point. The Matrix, the playbook, the PPG, the Kill List. Um, here's how what we kill people. About. How it's. It's more specific. It's narrow, right? It's it's what we do. It's it's the policy constraints that we insist upon as a matter of discretion, as a matter of policy, overlaying what remains since September 11th that afternoon in 2001, the armed conflict model where the U.S. government asserts it's got a state of armed conflict with then al-Qaeda, today al-Qaeda's successors, um, Without respect to geography, which is not to say that geography doesn't matter, but the claim the U.S. government's been maintaining for more than two decades running at this point is that it's a state of armed conflict and that the parameters of it are defined by where the adversaries are found, not not by where the particular geographic uh, locus of intensity might be, um, which is itself a point of controversy, which leads us into this topic. Why does the why does the administration have a policy overlay for the use? We're talking about the use of lethal force and the additional constraints that the U.S. government does not claim it has to uh, has to follow as a legal matter, but chooses to follow as a matter of policy. And the way to think about it that's most useful, I think, is this. And I'm going to go into some detail because I I think it's fair to say that at this point in mid 2023. There are lots of people who've either never really looked closely at this issue, who might be interested in the podcast now and listening to us, or who used to know the details but have long since 
been focused on other things and might like the refresher. So I would put it this way. Um, as I said a moment ago, after on the day of 9-11, or at least the day after, the Bush administration makes a determination that a, that a factual and legal state of armed conflict exists with Al-Qaeda. And uh, of course, later on, you get the AUMF a week or so later, kind of backing up this, uh, or a few days later, rather. What was it? September 14th, Steve? 18, uh, so 14th out of Congress, 18th signed 18th. by Bush. Yeah. So so a couple of days later, 48 hours later, sort of a reaffirmation of, of that model. Neither the Bush administration's initial determination nor the AMF talks about geographic constraints. In fact, we certainly know that the Bush administration from the beginning had in mind, look, it's where we find Al-Qaeda. Uh, the, the impact of geography from the Bush administration's legal perspective had to do with, uh, from a legal perspective, had to do with UN charter type concerns about, okay, what's the sovereignty analysis if we're going to go into this area? And that leads to topics like the famous unwilling and unable test. But let's set that aside for the moment. Uh, the important thing to note is that in the fall of 2001, and for really actually about a full year from 9-11, the only net publicly known locations where the United States was using lethal force was Afghanistan. Um, and it wasn't, there were lots of debates and discussions about this, but relative to what comes later, categorically speaking, there wasn't controversy about the fact that the United States was using lethal force in Afghanistan, not in the sense we associate with the controversy that definitely attends what most people think of as the drone policies that come later. So that kicks off in November 2002 when the public learns about a what it turned out to be a drone strike, but an airstrike. It was a targeted use of lethal force in Yemen. So quite, quite physically removed from the Afghan area of active hostilities. And then from that public beginning, mounting in frequency and increasing in geographic scope a little bit, though never that much, um, but definitely increasing in intensity of the scale of the use of lethal force. You eventually have, you know, hundreds of uses of lethal force, mostly airstrikes, uh, occurring uh, the Fatah region of Pakistan. Um, you have it certainly in Yemen on a large scale at certain points in time, increasingly in Somalia. Uh, it gets more complicated because, of course, you have the Iraq war that breaks out. You then have the Islamic State resurgence and the, the Syria-Iraq theater kind of opens up after that. You have North Africa stuff. You have the Libya. You have the, the fall of Gaddafi use of lethal force in Libya, and then what we're really talking about, the counterterrorism use of lethal force all across North Africa. Well, wait, that's an overstatement. Uh, in Libya and in a few other isolated instances separate from the Qaddafi business. And all those non, all the stuff that I just described that wasn't in an area in which everyone agrees, okay, there's a level of intensity that there within the, that zone, it's an area of active hostilities. Anytime you're using force under an armed conflict model in such other places, that's gonna be controversial. And indeed it was to some extent domestically and hugely internationally with a large number of critics saying that the law of armed conflict model doesn't apply in those geographic locations because you don't have sufficient uh, periodicity and intensity, scale and intensity and repetition of, of the violence. Um, and, and if that is the controlling argument or if that's one's viewpoint, big things follow from that. First of all, you shouldn't be using lethal force as a first resort. You shouldn't be uh, embracing the collateral damage rules we associate with the rules of proportionality in the law of armed conflict. Um, 
you know, a whole slew of things that we might characterize either as the domestic law enforcement model, if you're in the United States, or more broadly, the international human rights law model. Um, and then came a moment when the Obama administration came in, John Brennan, who later on went to be CIA director, but at the time was the counter, the head of, for counterterrorism in the NSC system. Um, he was Obama's counterterrorism advisor. He gave a speech at Harvard Law where he said, look, we've got all this criticism around this issue, but you should know that we have policy constraints for use of force outside of areas of active hostilities that as a matter of policy discretion actually do align us with what our critics say human rights law requires. So there's kind of no delta there. So, hey, we don't have to be quite so worked up about this. Um, that was a heck of a claim. I was there when he said it. It was very interesting and surprising. And um, he unpacked the claim a little bit and he basically said what amounts to, look, outside of areas of active hostilities, we only use lethal force when there's an imminent threat to life. And note the adjective there, imminent. As we've talked about in the show many times over the years, the U.S. government's definition of imminent in this context is a term of art. Term of art that's arguably morphed depending on who in the government you're asking and when, but at least it's sometimes in places the dominant policy meaning for the use of force has been not temporally imminent like within the next six seconds or the next 20 minutes, but rather imminent in the sense that it is certain that the target is going to try to kill somebody, set off a bomb or cause a bomb to be set off indirectly. Um, and we, we have no reason to think we'll ever see that person again, but we just got him in our sights briefly through good luck. And we have to act now before the window of opportunity closes. That, that's, a, that's, not, that's not the layperson's understanding of imminent, but it is sort of a technical uh, and important definition you need to keep track of to follow this debate. Then there was stuff about how we, you know, we only use lethal force in such cases if capture is not feasible. Now, feasible contains a universe assumptions about how much risk it would it wouldn't be necessary to take in order to instead try to capture the person um, and in assumptions about the likelihood that there will be collateral damage or or loss of life to innocent bystanders and so at least the assertion was hey look it's actually not that different we really we're really careful outside the areas of active hostilities not that we're naming all the areas of active hostilities publicly that was i think the public beginning of what eventually became this, at this point, seemingly endless series of tweaks and revisions. Um, it went through modest changes during the Trump years, the, the resulting sort of policy framework. Never, never near, Steve, I, don't, I wonder if you'd agree with this. I would say that from what we know of the Trump changes, whatever one thinks about the slight degree of loosening that Trump imposed on this, it actually, the they weren't that different. By and large, quite the story, quite the surprising story was under the Trump administration, the policy framework didn't actually change that much. There was there was recalibration of the degrees of certainty for yeah. these things like risk of collateral damage. But the general idea that this is the framework and and that there are these considerations and we take them seriously, that was kept in place. That always surprised me. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I guess I think the the recalibration of risk of certainty, I think, was a big deal, um, especially for the human rights community where collateral damage is a big part of the story here, even if you accept the lawfulness of the strikes in the abstract. But yes, I, I, I don't dispute your characterization. And if we look at the um, very lawyerly said, well done, um, <laughs> if you look at the pattern of 
stories that we have from the public record through the work of journalists, we have plenty of stories throughout this period about, you know, uh, mistakes that were made where there was a lot of collateral damage or innocent bystanders killed. Um, and it, it doesn't seem like it was particularly bad just during that period. There, there are some ugly episodes at, at all these different points in time. Well, anyways, long story short, um, there was a story on, I think it was July 1st, uh, most recent, in which uh, the Times and Charlie had succeeded through a Freedom of Information Act request, prying loose the October 2022 latest edition of all this. And to me, the most amazing thing about this is how few people seem to care, how little how little commentary this excited. And there was interesting stuff in there. They actually, as, as a corollary to that story, Charlie secured information that I don't think was in the documents. I think he got this through just good old fashioned shoe leather, uh, where someone acknowledged that the current list of, of geography for areas of active hostilities, it's Iraq and Syria, and that's it. And that's super interesting, both for the exclusion of Afghanistan and especially Somalia, and the inclusion of Iraq, not just Syria. Syria didn't surprise me, but I think it's interesting. It's understandable from a certain point of view, but it's not like we're carrying out airstrikes uh, in Iraq, or at least not that I'm hearing about. Um, the other pieces of the story, it was all more the same. Uh, near certainty of no collateral damage, infeasibility of capture, uh, imminent threat to life, or, and this is the big carve out, this is the really big carve out, and it's not new, this is from before, it's continuity, or in defense of U.S. forces deployed abroad in those areas, or critically, in defense of local partner forces that we're training or advising or supporting. And one need only look to the pattern of, of airstrikes that continue pretty regularly in Somalia, I think nine so far this year, so more than once a month. Um, most of these are publicly described as in collective self-defense, so so-called imminent threats to uh, Somali uh, government forces are the basis for this. And, and by saying so-called, I don't mean to be sarcastic about it. I'm just trying to underscore the uh, the flexible understanding of eminence. And, and so, Steve, I'm not sure what else there is to say about this other than the same framework we've had all along continues apace. And that means if and when the nature of the threat picture takes its next evolutionary step, let's say somebody pulls off an external operation and kills people in the United States, um, and, it, and the, the post hoc analysis traces back to some different location, maybe a, a different group, there will still always be the question of can you tie it back to Al-Qaeda through the reverse tracking of the AUMF. But subject to that, uh, I think you should and would expect to see the government, assuming it already has all the force it needs to decide some new area may become an area of active operations. And even if not, it's got this framework for using lethal force in, in that way I just described in those places. Does that sound right to you? Yes, um, with, the, with the, the caveat that I think I've always had that, boy, it would be nice if you know the constitutional branch empowered with making decisions about war um, weighed in on any of this, but what do I know? You know I always think of Amy Zigart's uh, scholarship talking about what are the incentives of the median member of Congress in, in relation to these national security matters um, and in how little 
incentive structure there is in the system for people to do much on this topic. So there it is. Uh, and I think both of us agree that people should expect this to remain the status quo for what, as long as we keep doing this podcast? I mean, there's no reason to believe that it's going to change. Just like Guantanamo. Can I get a Guantanamo update, Steve? Oh, oh I really don't. Must so I? something happened in Nishiri. Do we have like a 15-layer dip at this point? The, the dip <sighs> is very stale at this point, I'll tell you that. What, what has happened now? I don't want to use any any words to describe the dip at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, what is happening now? They are still fighting over um, the question of whether the government can use any kind of sort of um, information that was indirectly obtained from statements made under torture in the CIA rendition program as part of these pretrial proceedings. Um, the D.C. Circuit, I think, since we last recorded, um, held that it lacked the power to adjudicate Nashiri's latest mandamus petition on the subject um, after the government had basically withdrawn the position it had argued initially in the trial court. This is also part of what helped to precipitate General Martin's resignation as the chief prosecutor. So Colonel Acosta, who I also think is about to cycle out because he's about to retire because for the umpteenth time we're having judge problems in the Guantanamo military commissions um, apparently is set to rule on some pretty big Nashiri stuff pretty soon. But I mean, Bobby, it's, it's, it's July of 2023. Like sheesh. No, it's, it's just nuts. I think we've made that point repeatedly enough on this show. Um, Speaking of the military though, and and the Southern part of the United States, should we talk about the, the good ship fifth circuit? Yeah, let's head north and west into the Fifth Circuit from to New Orleans. Orleans. All right, Steve, what happened with the National Guard? So um, I, I, let me tell you, the, the caption of this case, I think, is amusingly nonspecific. The caption of the case is Abbott versus Biden. Um, There's a lot of those. There are a lot of those. Or Biden versus Texas or U.S. versus Texas. Actually, the Supreme Court decided a U.S. versus Texas not so long ago. In a minute, we're going to talk about Missouri versus Biden. Oh, God. Uh, well, one of them, um, actually, n- not the more important. Uh, the more important Missouri versus Biden case is actually called Nebraska versus Biden. Um, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. But- who's on first? I don't know. <laughs> third base. <laughs> okay, so what happened with the national? What was the issue about the national guard? Okay, so um, this was about when when the federal government and the military uh, adopted a COVID vaccine mandate. Remember COVID? Remember that that, that pandemic we, we had not so long ago? Well, it's going to be shot time pretty soon. So the federal government uh, imposed a COVID vaccination mandate on everyone in the military. Basically, Bobby, except ironically enough, retired service members. That's But that's another matter. <laughs> that's a <laughs> sensitive point for you, I know. Uh, our cert petition's pending, baby. Um, <laughs> Larrabee, is this Larrabee 3, I guess, at this point? Um, okay. Um, the the COVID vaccination mandate uh, included not just, Bobby, active duty troops. It included reservists, um, such as unfederalized National Guard troops. So really, really quickly, the National Guard, right? Every state and the District of Columbia has a National Guard. And I think Puerto Rico and Guam do, too. Um the National Guard, when it's unfederalized, Bobby, is under the command and control of the governor, right? But when it's federalized, it's under the command and control of the president. Um, and for 
constitutional purposes, right? The National Guard of the United States is supposed to be part of the land and naval forces, um, even though when they're unfederalized, they're also often viewed as militia. All right. If you're followed at home, um, in an opinion by Judge Andy Oldham, um, the Fifth Circuit held last month that President Biden lacked the constitutional authority to impose the COVID vaccination mandate, Bobby, on unfederalized National Guard troops because the Fifth Circuit held the Constitution does not permit the federal government, as opposed to state governments, um, to punish unfederalized National Guard troops, including by court martial. Um, so in essence, right, Judge Oldham held that if you are an unfederalized National Guards man or woman, um, you cannot be court-martialed for anything you do while you are unfederalized. Did that surprise oh, you? Sorry, sorry. Look that up. You can't be federally court-martialed. You can be right, state yeah. court-martialed, right. Right. but you can't be court-martialed by the federal government. Um, it, did that surprise me? So as a COVID vaccination case in the Fifth Circuit, no, it did not surprise me. Um, that <laughs> well, the Fifth Circuit, in the context of the, we've had militias in the National Guard for a long yes. time, yes. subject to potential federalization. So yes. surely there's a course of practice here. Is it the case there's never been such an attempt? So by statute, right, Congress has never subjected unfederalized National Guard troops to court-martial, um, right? And, and like, so- and like, why would it? Well, one could ask the same about, so so just to, to spoil where I'm going with this, one could ask the same about retired service members, Mr. <laughs> Chesney. Um, there you go, so the, ball, right but, down the middle. But this is, so so this is what I'm actually- this is what it's actually, it is, it's Home Run Derby tonight, right? Yeah. Um, but this is what leads me to be in the rare and awkward position of completely agreeing with Judge Oldham, um, which is that, you know, I've been arguing from my little soapbox for the better part of, gosh, five years now, that the Constitution prevents the federal government from court-martialing retired service members for offenses they committed while they are retired. Bobby, the whole theory of that is that until and unless they are activated, right? They are not properly subject to federal military jurisdiction. That's the argument in the retiree cases. So we lost, as you may recall, on that exact point. I heard something about that on some podcast. I heard tell somewhere. Um, <laughs> so we lost in last August, but two to one before the DC Circuit. And Bobby, Judge Rao's opinion, as I'm sure you remember, um, held that it's constitutional for the government to court-martial someone if two things are true. One, if they are by statute, part of the land and naval forces, and two, if they are subject to at least one current military order. So for retirees, the order they're subject to is a recall order, right? The being recalled to active duty. All right, Bobby, let's do National Guard troops. Are they part of the land and naval forces of the United States? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe. Well, so what's I mean, answer? by statute, so when you join the National Guard, Bobby, so let's say let's say that you were an airman in the Texas National Guard, um, right? You actually are joining two different organizations. You're joining the Texas National Guard and you're joining the, quote, National Guard of the United States, unquote. Um, and it's because you're joining the latter that the president, for example, can send you overseas for training missions without federalizing you, right? Ah, um, okay. Interesting development. And the Supreme Court upheld that particular use of the National Guard in a 1988 case called Perpich versus Department of Defense. 
And if one is in that situation, deployed overseas for training purposes without being federalized, but nonetheless, because the federal government has sent you, is that not an occasion where UCMJ type jurisdiction? It does apply because you're in training, right? So yeah. so the UCMJ applies when you're inactive but on active duty training. Okay. okay. I'm, um, with, I'm with you. So, so anyway, the, the moral of the story is not only do I think Judge Oldham is right, but I also think that his opinion it doesn't create like an explicit circuit split because it's not about retirees. It's about a different category of military personnel. But I don't know how you reconcile his logic with Judge Rouse. Um, right? That is to say, if, if, if it is constitutionally permissible for the government to court-martial retired service members for post-retirement offenses, Bobby, because they are part of the military statutorily and because they have one order that would call them to active duty, that describes National Guard troops too. Um, so is this going to impact? I mean, what are the spillover impacts on other litigations? Well, so funny you should ask. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever given that any thought? <laughs> so the funny, so it's funny because like, the, let me take it. So my thought process when I saw this decision was, uh oh, Judge Oldham's writing about COVID. Um, but then I read it and I was like, huh, interesting. Um, so you we know, filed. We a- should pause here to actually, because this is a good sort of teaching moment. Um, you and Andy don't agree on lots of stuff, and you're ideologically apart from one another. That does not mean that you guys are always going to disagree with each other. There are going to be things, and and if you're a student who's heading off to law school in about a month, and you're about wow, to enter into really a month, I know. Can you believe that? Um, well, a month and a half, I guess, but. Either way, uh, just understanding that you cannot actually predetermine the results in every case. You can't count on always disagreeing with those for whom you have the most disagreement on some of the most flashier issues. It doesn't. It doesn't follow that everything else is going to be disagreement. You and Andy probably just probably agree about plenty of stuff. This is one. You got to look. So, I guess, bottom line is, you have to look at each case as it comes. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with all that. This is all just a long way of saying, though. So we filed our cert petition in Larrabee um, back in May. Um, the government has received a second extension to file its brief in opposition. It's now due on August 25th, which means our reply will be filed sometime in September. Um, Bobby, I think Judge Oldham just made Larrabee a heck of a lot more cert worthy. Sure did. That's what I That's what I think. You're, you're a good news gift from, from Andy there. Um, Which is not to say say we're going to win, but I think what it really underscores is that it is time for the U.S. Supreme Court to resolve one way or the other what kind of authority the federal government has over inactive but not separated military personnel. Well, and and I'll just add something I've said before, which is like this, this is an issue that may sometimes present in seemingly low stakes ways, but in principle, it could matter a ton. Yep. It, it can matter a whole bunch. And so I well, do so one, and, and one of the things I'll be really interested to see in the federal government's response in our case is whether they say anything at all about the Fifth Circuit. Um, because our case doesn't come up at all in the Fifth Circuit decision, um, which I think is an interesting sort of, uh, I don't know, omission. Um, <laughs> all right, speaking <laughs> of the Fifth Circuit, I'm oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Speaking of the Fifth Circuit, should we talk about Judge Dowdy? Yeah, okay. So on the fast track to the Fifth Circuit, and by the way, I think uh, Judge Dowdy... Oh, it's already there. 
Okay, I think a few hours ago he had declined. He, he denied the stay. Yeah, no, no. Right. So the, the the DOJ has already filed its stay application in the Fifth Circuit. Right. So we need a uh, we need a sound effect for when we have a nationwide injunction. <laughs> how how all star weekend or week appropriate that is. Okay, so we have quite the nationwide injunction here. Although I would say that this actually isn't a scenario in which the nationwide aspect is is the central thing to be excited about. It just happens to be nationwide. What is exciting is that we have an extremely, shall we say, assertive and uh, enthusiastic, long, 155 pages district court opinion that takes some extraordinary steps. Nothing I can think of is anything like it in the historical record. Steve, you're better at that than I am. You may be able to think of whatever the next closest example is. Uh, in joining a remarkably long list of government officials, including a number of law enforcement and national security officials, uh, from a uh, litany of interactions with major social media platforms, the, the common thread being don't interact in ways that cajole or pressure them or encourage or even maybe ask them or follow up on asking them to uh, pull down from the platform conduct, uh, comments or statements or speech posts that would be eligible, that are First Amendment protected if the government was directly uh, engaging them in that way. In other words, the idea is that the government, according to this opinion, uh, supposedly has so crossed the line into the realm of, so th this is what, let's back up. This is what people talk about as jawboning, where government officials are not actually issuing purported legally binding orders, but in their interactions with the private sector actor, asking and cajoling them to take some action, there's a question about where's the line between the government's freedom to have thing, have conversations and encourage things and the types of conversations that go so far into the pressuring category that they amount to, uh, I don't know, uh, coercion, I guess you might say, and, and hence have more or less the same character as actual government intervention to silence protected speech. The judge concludes that that has occurred in, in a host of complicated ways, mostly relating to uh, uh, the government's interactions with social media platforms during the pandemic and, and issues this crazily broad sweeping injunction, but then kind of adds in these caveats saying, well, this doesn't apply if they're communicating for uh, criminal law enforcement purposes, national security purposes. Whatever it is, is a big, complex mess, and I've never seen anything like this purporting to reach into government communications with private entities and purporting to pre-silence, you might, you might even say prior restraint, uh, you might. Said, said government officials. So, Steve, is there anything historically analogous to this? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> nothing, nothing we can even play with uh, that's like sort of on the dimension. Has any... But I know there's been a lot of attempts in recent years to to challenge jawboning as a First Amendment violation in various yes. ways. By the way, there's an excellent podcast 
uh, Genevieve Lacquier and uh, and our friend uh, Evelyn Dueck on on I think it's called content, moderated content from Stanford Law their podcast series um, really good podcast on this topic strongly recommended um, so Steve we agree there's there's nothing like this previously that that doesn't end the conversation let's figure out where where we think things may have gone wrong here. Cause I think we both believe this is not long for the world of law. Well, I, I, have you met the fifth circuit? Did Chesney? Oh, there's more. There, there's, you never know. You never know. And as you, you were just uh, applauding a fifth circuit ruling. So per my earlier point, I, I think it's far from clear and foregone conclusion that the fifth circuit, <laughs> but let's, let's talk about like, where's, Where's the, the, the meat in, in the thing? Where, where, where do we start with what's wrong with this ruling? So, so you, you mentioned the caption of this case, Louisiana versus Biden. Let's start there. I thought it was, um, was it, wasn't it Missouri v. Biden? Oh, sorry. Missouri versus Biden. But they filed it in Louisiana. Um, yes. It's right? the AG from Missouri and the AG from Louisiana teaming up. And they didn't just file it in Louisiana, Bobby. They filed it in a single judge division in the Western District of Louisiana because that's not limited to Texas. So they knew they had a 100% chance of drawing Judge Dowdy when they filed this lawsuit. Um, okay, Bobby, let me ask you a question. I will say, just real quick, I will say, there was, he was a, Judge Dowdy was appointed by President Trump, as were lots of judges. It was not remotely obvious to me from what little I know about Judge Dowdy's prior record that he was going to turn out to have shall we say, such a strong view about social media content moderation policies and pandemic stuff. I mean, I think it was clear to the Attorney General of Louisiana and, 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 and Missouri. But that aside, um, Bob uh, Prittel, how do Missouri and Louisiana have standing? You mentioned that the injunction restrains a stunningly broad array of federal officers from communicating, from communicating with Twitter and other social media networks, none of whom are Louisiana or Missouri. So you will know the answer to this. I assume that their argument is that they are standing in for the interest of the social media platform users of their protective state. Protect- which should, right, protect- which is a theory of standing called parents patriae, which even this Supreme Court just rejected in both uh, Brookine versus Hall or Holland versus Brookine, the Indian Child Welfare Act case, and U.S. versus Texas. I will just say both cases where the Supreme Court rejected Texas's standing after it had been upheld by the Fifth Circuit. But what do I know? Um, so do you think that what might happen is that the Fifth Circuit will basically just kick this out on that theory and avoid touching the merits? I think that's what should happen. <laughs> um, of course, I also thought that the Fifth Circuit should have kicked the Mifepristone lawsuit out on standing without reaching the merits. But instead, in an opinion by Judge Oldham, the Fifth Circuit went to the merits and said there was standing in a context in which I can't see how there's possibly standing. So um, suffice to say, I'm not especially confident that the Fifth... So let me say, the Fifth Circuit has the most capacious state standing jurisprudence in the country. I think that's just objectively true. I do um, think that's right. Um, this, I think you're right that this is this is pretty tough to square with the recent rulings you mentioned. Let's... So we've noted that issue. This case could go away. Ultimately, I mean, I should say, I mean, will go away on that. To the, to the state, to this, in the state's defense, they have other state. I mean, Bobby, they're not just sitting there saying parents patriae. They're also alleging all of these ways in which the states are directly harmed 
by this collusion that like the state's electoral processes are disrupted and all this other stuff. Um, I would say that those harms are, even if you believe that those are particularized, and I'm not really persuaded that they are, um, they're certainly not um, individualized in the way that the Supreme Court has. Yeah, I agree. Required. I think that that's that's pretty weak. I, I could say because by that logic, I mean the, the short answer is if every state has standing, then it should follow that no state has standing, right? Like standing is supposed to be about a concrete and particularized injury, not an injury that every state suffers by dint of the federal policy you're challenging. Well, let, let me press on that a little bit because there must be cases and circumstances in which there's a federal policy or practice uh, that is a problem that genuinely impacts a state. And does so for all fifty, right? So the, in, the, which, in, in which case, historically, we've thought that the that the response was the political process, right? I mean, this is Herbert Wetzler's political safeguards of federalism. Um, it's not usually of right. We don't usually think of standing doctrine as saying like you know, as long as this affects all, you know, everyone can sue is not usually how we think of standing. Now, well, yeah. what? If, but what if it's something? Let's hypothesize something that's some sort of some federal action that just blatantly. Uh, it's a violation of, of a, a state, a, a recognizable state sovereignty interest. Um, the fact that any one state could sue, would, would, would it really be the case under current doctrine that no state could sue because all 50 states are getting Yeah, hurt? I guess that might be a bit of an overstatement. No, I mean, I guess the Medicaid expansion is a good example yeah. where, right, the Medicaid, I mean, the Medicaid expansion affected, but, but the Medicaid expansion, Bobby, acted on states directly and affected them all differently. Right. I, right. I think so. I think the better argument is like this isn't that kind of scenario. There are yeah, scenarios yeah. where that would work, as even though all fifty states are implicated. Right. But this this ain't that. There's also so there are injury and fact problems. There are causation problems, and there are redressability problems. It's like a, it's like the 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 trifecta of standing problems. Yeah. And then there's the pesky little matter of the merits. Um, yeah. So let's get to this. So everyone's focused on the merits. It's good that we flag the standing issue because it's easy to see how that might be the one. That is the appellate uh, death Should be. But that, that's what I thought about Mifepristone. And then I, I, the Fifth Circuit made me look bad in front of all my federal court students. <laughs> they still loved you. I've seen the teaching evals. Yeah, fair. Uh, friends, listeners, you should know uh, that our student body at Texas Law is very politically diverse. Everybody's represented. They all, take, they all sign up for Steve's class and they all love him. Those who think he's wrong about everything as much as those <laughs> who think he's right. Uh, yeah, they do. They, they, they do tolerate me, I guess. No, they 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 more than that. They idolize you, and and that is how that's how it ought to be with faculty. You you shouldn't have to agree with your teacher to, uh, you know. To I agree with that. Learn well from them. Okay, right, so, so merits. On, merits on to the merits. Okay, let me ask you this because I think you know this stuff better than me. Um, there, there is you know from Bantam books and other cases, we know there is this idea that even when the government's not formally using its powers to effectuate a First Amendment violation, there is such an idea conceptually as um, jawboning to the point where, look, this is basically threatening the private actor and it's tantamount to directly regulating a violation. Therefore, it is scrutinizable. Um, where, how should, tell me a little bit if, if you've got anything on this about this doctrine, this idea of reaching to the de facto suppression of private speech, where you go through somebody right. else to try to force a, uh, a suppression. So, I mean, the doctrine, I think, makes a fair amount of sense. Let's start at the beginning. There's, there's one step I think we have to cover before we get to that, which is the state action doctrine. Um, 
right? So, so for those who are not well-versed in this, um, it has been an inexorable principle of constitutional law since at least, what, 1883? Civil um, rights cases. Civil rights cases. Um, that as a general matter, with one exception, the exception is the 13th Amendment, the Constitution generally does not regulate or act directly against private conduct. It's um, a meaning, tool for the constraint. From this perspective, it's a tool for the constraint of governments. We're going to create right. powerful governments right. and constrain them with the Constitution. Now, Congress can pass statutes under its constitutional powers that regulate private conduct. States can pass statutes, right? But the point is that the Constitution itself does not regulate, for example, um, well, Bobby and I are bad examples because we're public employees. But if we were to private law school, this would be easier. <laughs> All right. Um, what but that like, means, this, is, this is why if a restaurant owner says, "Hey, you're you're I don't I don't like what you're saying. Get out of my restaurant." Yes, that is not a First Amendment violation because the First Amendment has nothing to say Correct. about what ordinarily Correct. what a private actor is saying. Now, right? now, now it there might be complicated. Get, what's that? So, so, so there, so there, there might be state or federal public accommodations laws right. that the restaurant owner is violating. Yeah. But that's not the Constitution. And by the okay. way, I think you and I both share a little frustration with the fact that it is so commonplace, including by politicians these days, to throw around when referring to private company decisions about speech on their premises, in their pages, on their platforms, and referring to it as a First Amendment violation when private entities are enforcing content moderation policies. Whatever it is, as a default matter, it's not a, con it's not a constitutional violation. It can't be. They're private entities. Although the fifth, well, back to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit has held otherwise in in the in the HB twenty right. social media case that the courts could have to hear next term. Uh, in an opinion by Judge Oldham. So I was trying to draw the line between like the default I rule, I and then you get and into where, right. situations where you have: is it the shopping mall? Is it right. is it the utility? Okay. These right. prune yard and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So 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 the short. So there are two different ways in which this gets really complicated. Way number one is when you have a private company that's effectively providing government services, um, right? And so this this you sometimes can't avoid this by outsourcing the service to a private entity, right? If it's a government service that's being provided, so so there are two sets of those cases. There's the company town cases, like March versus Alabama, where like the fact that you live in a company town where the police and the fire department are all technically part of your company doesn't exclude the police and the fire department from constitutional liability. Um, but there's also the common carrier cases where, you know, the notion that you, if you're providing common care, like you're a telephone company, what that means is that you are subject to more pervasive scrutiny and government regulation than other private companies because you're effectively providing an, an, an essential public service. Yeah. And this is sort of, so this, you know, Clarence Thomas has shown a lot of interest in this. And I think this was a big, this is sort of the underlying theory, if I recall correctly, from the Fifth Circuit decision. Is it, isn't that right? That it's, it's a big part of it. Yeah. That at least some social media platforms have that sort of function and they, in effect, end up cloaked with the pros and cons of being quasi governmental almost in that respect. Um, so, do we have that sort of story here or are we talking about something else? So this is something else. So this is the coercion side. So the the, the other side of the coin is cases in which um, a private party is acting only because the government coerced it to act. Um, and so the argument in those cases is that um, when the government coerces a private party to do its bidding, the private party and right, both the private party and the government should be liable for the government's misbehavior. And so if we stipulate a hypothetical fact pattern in which an, admin, an administration, who knows what party, right. uh, reaches out to a private 
entity, who knows what entity, and using a combination of express and veiled threats makes them an offer they can't refuse to silence speech within their premises or in their pages or on their platform. Right. Uh, if those were all true, then that would be an instance of a First Amendment violation, unless there was some exception that otherwise exists. But, but what's interesting is a First Amendment violation by the company, right? I mean, the, the whole point of these cases is that in the coercion context, the First Amendment violation is the private company doing the government's bidding, um, right? Now, you know, it gets sticky about, well, can you also see the government? Like the cases are sort of less clear on that point. Okay. Um, to me, this is where the merits complete, even if you can, so there's a separate issue about prior restraint, which I also want to talk about. Yeah. Um, but even correct. if you even if you get all the way to the merits, even if you somehow get past the standing problems, um, the the notion that the federal government, Bobby, I don't dispute for a second that the federal government makes countless requests of private companies on a daily basis to Across do things. A vast array. Right. Right. A vast do array. The, right. Uh, uh, we've talked before about the vulnerabilities equities process. Right, where um, the federal government is uh, one of the sort of active participants in helping private software designers patch up vulnerabilities, software and hardware, right? Um, where they're not compelling uh, these tech companies to patch their stuff. They're just saying, hey, we found this vulnerability. We want to help you figure out how to patch well, it. On that, of course, as you know, uh, with cybersecurity, like information sharing and cajoling and encouragement, please do this, please do that. That's an essential part of our security. An essential part, all of us depend on that. You can say much the same thing about an endless array of other points of intersection between the world of government and the world of the private sector. Now, that doesn't mean it's all okay. And what well, we've so, been so, so, so this is the critical point, right? Which is that what? So, so I want to sort of talk about two. So, there's okay as a policy matter, and there's okay as a constitutional matter, right? We only get to the constitutional line when it is coercive, meaning. Right when the company believes it has no legal, as opposed to Bobby, economic or political, right? No legal ability to say no, right? And so, um, no legal like that. The company will face retribution, retaliation. The company will face Bobby legal consequences um, if it refuses to comply, right? And the the idea is that like otherwise, it's not coercive. If you can freely tell the government, you know, to get lost then no matter how strongly the government asks, no matter how compelling the ask is, it's not coercive. So I would say there's a, this is a classic moment where there's a spectrum. It's, it's tempting to, to divide up the world doctrinally into clearly distinguished buckets. There's coercion and just asking. But of course, the reality is, and, and anyone who is listening to this who took my combine class is rolling their eyes because they can picture the slide with the buckets that I then replace Ooh, bucket. the spectrum and showing that it's it's a bit of an illusion. And even though it's really clear at the edges, the difference between coercion and just asking, the reality for, for whatever we're talking about, there's always a gray zone in the middle where, I don't know, this is a lot more than just asking, but it's fuzzy as to whether this is coercive. I, I think there's no question that there are all sorts of ways in which the formality is that we're just asking, we're the government, but we're just asking, but the practical perceived, maybe even the objective experience of the person being asked is, oh my God, I think we're going to have this problem and that problem and that problem. And, it, and I'm really not free to say no. And I think that the law, the doctrine should account for that. The problem here is this 155 page opinion in the first like 
80 pages or whatever, um, set forth just like this huge farrago of information and, and anecdotes and things that were gleaned from the discovery process. But if you read really carefully looking for where's, where's something or a pattern of something that like really clearly shows actually the administration was constantly crossing the line and was really, really raising the question of systematic coercion. It's really, really thin and it's buried amidst all this other stuff that's not inappropriate. Whatever it is, it's run of the, it's relatively run of the mill, uh, despite the exigencies of the circumstances. Um, I mean, Steve, is it fair to say that like the, the, the handful of nuggets where there's an email or a request to one of the platforms using really strong language, immediately, please, immediately take this down. And they didn't say, please, that there's a handful of these things, but that's being used, that little, those thin little reads are being taken to construct this gigantic, I, I would say it's a house of cards, I guess, because it'd be so easily knocked down to make it seem as if there's just this systematic forcing of the platforms to comply. And I don't think it bears scrutiny, certainly not to the point that would be necessary to justify such an, a massively sweeping national injunction across all these key government officials. We're talking about the heads of the FBI, CISA, all these key agencies being put into serious doubt about where it's legally safe for them even to communicate with the platforms. Is, is that how you see it as well? Yeah, and I also like where's the evidence of retaliation? You're saying where's the beef? Like that the, where they said please do this immediately, do that. You must do this. Right. Where's, where's the where's the, there was a real cost if you didn't? Okay. Yeah. What's the best answer to those who say, well, the cost? These people aren't fools. They understand that leaning cons at the uh, FTC and that you know there's there's talk about antitrust investigations and they were in fear of what the White House might do to them if they didn't play ball. What's the best answer to that? Let's put them on a witness stand and ask them. Well, let's stipulate that they really were in fear. Is is that enough? If they were in fear that they didn't play ball, if it was reason, I mean, I, I, listen, I would say if you had an if you had a signed affidavit from the general counsel of Twitter or Meta or whatever, saying you know we took these actions because and only because we reasonably feared that we would face you know some kind of legal action or sanction if we didn't, Bobby, I I, I would say that actually probably gets us into the ballpark. Guess what? Yeah. Guess what? Louisiana and Missouri don't have. Yeah. Well, and and so th this is the sort of thing that you could see. It. So that's how a claim like this could get before a jury. How it could withstand summary judgment. Relate this procedurally to the posture we're actually at, which right. is not not the trial. No, it's a prior restraint. So um, this is something that you know we we don't talk about enough in law school, but posture matters, right? So it would be one thing to say right, in light of you say that. It'd be one thing to say in light of all of this um, that, you know, maybe uh, the, the government would actually have a hard time winning a motion for summary judgment versus, you know, whether uh, Louisiana, Missouri, assuming they had standing, could create what we call a triable issue of material fact um, as to what the, what the relevant companies felt at the time they acted. Fine. Um, the problem is that Judge Dowdy granted a, a preliminary injunction. And Bobby, it actually, it, it is real. I mean, it's not nationwide in the sense that like geography, but nationwide injunctions aren't actually nationwide. What makes a nationwide injunction a nationwide injunction is that it enjoins the defendants from acting, period, and not just from acting against the plaintiffs. 
And so by that metric, this is absolutely such an injunction. Um, and what's worse is it prevents them from speaking in the future. Um, and so it therefore falls into a category of First Amendment uh, doctrine called prior restraint. And the Supreme Court, Bobby, is not a fan of prior restraints of speech. Now, normally when we talk prior restraints, the paradigm is a, an executive branch or legislative action is pre- preventively stopping a private actor from speaking. And, and that's definitely the core of the model. Here, we have a federal one federal actor constraining the communications of another federal actor. Um, help me think through, how do, how do we locate that doctrinally? Because in a sense, it, it's really weird, right? It, it's not constraining the private speaker, it's constraining federal speech. And it's another federal branch that's doing it. So, right. So I guess you could argue in response that, right, that because it's the gut, that, that prior restraint doctrine doesn't apply to restraining the government from speaking. But Bobby, I'm not sure that, first of all, the injunction doesn't prevent the government from speaking. It prevents a whole bunch of individual people from speaking. Um, but those, probably in their government capacities. That's fair. But second, I mean, the they don't have zero speech rights in that context. Um, right. They just have limited speech rights in that context. And Judge Daddy just never even really analyzes that. Can you. So we've I think we've shot a few holes in the case here or in the opinion, rather. Um, could you rescue him? This doesn't apply to the standing problem, but on the merits, can you or at least insofar as my critique is that the the remarkable thinness of the few relevant pieces of evidence cited in the record. So there's a huge amount of stuff in the opinion, in the factual summary, there's only a handful of things that are really relevant for this type of analysis, it seems to me. The rest is all, at, at best, selective presentation of context. Uh, in, my, my claim is that you cannot and you should not, at the preliminary injunction stage, be building such an impactful and disruptive remedy on that foundation. Uh, someone might respond to that and say, well, hold on, every single thing that says thou shalt not speak to this person about this or that, they all say to, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, in order to get the entity to take down First Amendment protected speech. Can you rescue the whole situation by saying like, whoa, whoa, what's all the big freak out? All I'm saying is you literally, you can't communicate to coerce people into taking down protected speech. And so as long as you're not doing that, I mean, you're, you're not saying you're doing that, right? So you're fine. You should be able to have the communications you want just don't coerce people into taking down protective speech. How do we respond? How does one respond to that argument in processing it to figure out what to make of it? Is, is the answer that, that well, that's fine, except that we just saw this analysis that treated very innocuous communications as if they were that. So we can't treat your constraint as innocuous. Maybe that's the full answer. I just, it just it just seems very selective, and if you're going to issue this kind of sweeping, um, unprecedentedly broad injunction, I feel like you got to be on firmer footing than just I'm worried that they said mean things to these people and threatened them. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's the, so um, the House of Cards critique is that there's a little there's a little tiny bit of foundation where there it, it's not that there's no doctrine that's relevant here. It's not that this isn't a theoretically potentially problematic. Correct. Thing. In fact, it's a you 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 need only imagine different circumstances from whatever one's own political preferences are, 
and imagine a circumstance in which what is able to be said is being impacted by seriously coercive jawboning to see why this is an important topic that shouldn't go down in flames just because this particular application of it isn't persuasive. Um, and just, oh, by the way, I mean, just while, while we're, I mean, we should stress that like the Supreme Court is going to have to grapple with this pretty soon. I mean, and by this, I mean, both Dowdy's injunction and Bobby, the broader question. So, you know, the, the government said this afternoon when it uh, asked for a stay from the Fifth Circuit, that if it doesn't get a stay from the Fifth Circuit, it's going to the Supreme Court. So hello, shadow docket. Um, but <laughs> this case aside, I mean, the question, the, the sort of, you know, social media company liability for speech stuff yeah. um, is, I think, part of what the court thought it was taking when it took those 230 cases last term. It actually yeah, wasn't. Yeah. But the net choice cases, right, the the dueling cert petitions about the dueling circuit court rulings. From Florida um, and Texas statutes. Right. So Florida and Texas passed these copycat statutes that basically ban large social media companies from engaging in any content moderation. And the 11th Circuit affirmed an injunction against um, Florida's law. The 5th Circuit reversed uh, an injunction or sorry, um, no, the district, yes, the election confirmed the Fifth Circuit reversed, um, right? And so now there's a circuit split the Supreme Court's going to have to resolve. Presumably next term, there's there's an outstanding call for the views of the Solicitor General. So that brief will probably come in later this summer with a grant, say, by November or December, and the case will be argued next spring. These, these types of questions and their parallel uh, versions in Congress about legislative change, these have so much strategic leverage about the world we're going to be living in in the future. It's always been true that control over pathways of information are central to power. It's all the more so now. And we have some really difficult policy battles in front of us and legal battles. Uh, but this may and not I, be a one. And just the last thing I'll say about this is, I mean, to me, what makes this so relevant to us, Bobby, is that like the national security implications of this are so significant when it comes to the ability of all of these you know, frontline executive branch officials to communicate with private companies when it comes to the threat horizon. Yeah, from, I mean, think about the uh, impact of of enjoining the uh, director of CISA from communicating with the platforms in ways that might, you might say like, look, there's exceptions here for national security and so forth. Fine, but there's a chilling effect from having the uncertain boundaries. It's very unclear to, in light of the rest of the opinion, it's hard to know, like, when would you really be in the safe harbor if you're Jen Easterly? By the way, full disclosure, um, the opinion has a couple of references to DHS CISA's Cybersecurity Advisory Committee. It refer- Because there's some stuff in there about a couple of people, because the advisory committee, uh, there, were, there was a project that some people on the advisory committee were involved in that had to do with misinformation. Um, I should state clearly for listeners' benefit, uh, not anymore, but for a while, I was on the advisory committee for cybersecurity. As you know, I I work in that area. That's sort of one of my academic areas. Um, I had nothing to do with anything relating to disinfo stuff. I worked on a cybersecurity clinic model. And by the way, UT has launched its super awesome cybersecurity clinic. If you are an Austin area nonprofit or small business, and you would like the help of some students under some professional guidance to come in and do some you know, basic blocking and tackling to help you improve your systems. We, uh, by next spring, will be be offering that to some lucky clients. Yay, cybersecurity clinics. 
Uh, and shout out to Google for just announcing they're putting millions of bucks into a surge effort to support similar such enterprises around the country. Yay, academia and Google and everybody helping people. But I felt like if we're talking about this decision and I say anything nice about CISA, I should mention, hey, I was on the advisory committee. I just wasn't involved in anything touching any of the stuff we just talked about. Okay. So Steve, it's all your fault is what you're really saying. <laughs> well, everything is, right? When you're the dean, that's true. Uh, we've been going over an hour and 10 minutes. Have We We should we should start getting frivolous again because we've been serious for at least 50, 45 minutes, maybe. Um, is, what, what, what do we have by way of frivolity? I guess we, 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 we're not talking about the Mets. I haven't seen Indiana Jones. Um, I will say the, the current and last season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Bobby, is exceptional. It's so good. So I finally started watching. I'm, I'm a few episodes in, loving it. Um, have you watched Picard season two yet? I finished season two. Are you? Season two. I, I, season two is the last one, not this one. Right. Yes, yes. I watched season two when it happened. Okay, so I'm caught up. Now, you probably don't remember at this point. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> uh, so this, this is, this is uh, uh, you know, if you don't want to hear this <laughs> Star Trek talk, please tune out. Um, so in season two, this is a Q shows up. This is all about right. Picard coming to terms with the, the death of his mother. Yes. Um, I thought it was quite good. I really yes. liked it. Yes. Um, not at all. Not, not, not remotely related to season one. Like season one, season two, totally different like plot arcs, but I, I didn't yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think if there's anything as I watch season two, desperately trying to belatedly catch up with you. Was there anything that jumped out as really? I just, I just haven't watched it in so long. I don't even remember it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so one, one day I watched a TV show and I don't remember it at all. <laughs> Poor Steve. All right, so we're not on the same page about Indiana Jones. Does that leave anything? Have you, have you, read a good, you know what? I'm reading a book. What's the book I'm reading? I am reading a book that I'm actually really enjoying. Um, it is called, uh, an ordinary man, the surprising life and historic presidency of Gerald R. Ford, Richard Norton Smith. Oh, I bet, I, you know, he certainly deserves, um, he certainly deserves a good bio. I got about partway through the recent Grover Cleveland bio mm -hmm. and then oh, decided, man, man of iron, isn't that man, yeah, is man it, of iron. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the whole shtick is like, this guy was so focused on his work every day, 8 a.m. to 3 a.m. And he was quite incorruptible. And it's like, wow, he sounds so admirable. I'm going to read something else, though, now that I know these wonderful things about him. Right. I'm going back to my pleasure reading as I read about someone else working harder than me. Exactly. But, you know, one of the funniest points, unintentionally funny, in the in the book is uh, there's, there's talk about, you know, he replaced Chester A. Arthur. Right. And I can, I freely confess, I didn't know a lot about Chester A. Arthur, but um, I now appreciate You haven't seen Die Hard with the Vengeance? I certainly remember nothing from Die Hard with the Vengeance. Oh, Chester, Chester Arthur figures, not prominently, but figures in right. the, in I the plot. I can do it because I had, I had no recollection that Chester A. Arthur was like such a dandy. And if right. I'm not mistaken, I think the author of, of Man of Iron refers to him, quotes somebody saying like, he was Jackie Onassis in the White House before Jackie O, um, Jacqueline Kennedy, I should say, for this purpose. So, um, yeah, Chester A. Arthur sounds like he deserves his own, you know, fresh biography. Maybe, maybe Steve, you could write that after you do your your 1864 bit. That that New York political machine that produced all those guys is really quite remarkable. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I've mentioned before on the podcast how much a fan I am of of um, a book about the means by which Arthur became president. So, uh, what, Destiny of the Republic, 
right? It's the book about James Garfield. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's how how amazing of a president Garfield might have been if he had if if his doctors hadn't killed him. What what was the Gore Vidal book about? Roughly this period. It's in his sequence. Nineteen seventy six. Is that it? Yeah. Oh, so good. Vidal's so good. What a start. Um, I've been reading, um, so a, a while back, I think I reviewed on the show, having read Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Blake Crouch a lot. It's he, it, These are page-turning, smart. If you, it's, it's sort of an updated Michael Crichton kind of vibe. And uh, Upgrade is definitely in that genre. I'm close to the end. No spoilers, please. But I'm really enjoying it. Um, has there been anything else recently? Hmm. All right, send us recommendations for yeah, for all yeah. the time that we are are, are have to to. I mean, yeah. There's um, always. Just, I mean, I say this to new law, new law students all the time. I know. There's always time for good fiction, and for that matter, good nonfiction. Um, and, and and I think we need a vote on Indiana Jones versus Oppenheimer. All right, so get the get the listeners in on that. I think that Oppenheimer. Like, I think you should wait and see from the reviews. Is it really true that it pays out to see that on IMAX? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if that's um, if that's like not it, true, like, then, like oh, Interstellar. What's that? Like Interstellar. Oh yeah, yeah. Much uh, Interstellar. Christopher Nolan's one of his many fine works. Yes. Um, all right. Well, listen. We'll we'll try to go fewer than twenty nine. Oh, you know what we didn't talk about at all. By the way, the entire podcast. Maybe we should do this next time. Russia. <laughs> I mean, whoops. What? What's there to say about uh, a lot regression? What What's the latest? Uh, what do you think the reality is? First, two questions for you, Steve. One was the whole thing a setup, or did he did he did he just think that he had more chance than he had? And is he currently dead? Is he on the run? Is the whole thing in? Is there a fix? Like, what is going on here? Okay, so I am confident that this was not all staged. Okay. Um, that is that there ends my confidence about any of this. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like something happened. Um, but, but as for exactly what happened and why, I mean, you know, I, I go to my, my older sister, Liz is a real Russia file and, you know, she, you know, her, um, she married a Russian. She lived in Russia. Like she understands Russia and Russian politics to a degree that, you know, I think very few Americans do. And so I just take all of my sort of wisdom on this from her. And I think her basic, her basic view is, you know, Prigozhin got cold feet for some reason somewhere along the way. We may never know why. And now it's about face saving um, by everybody involved. Maybe, uh, maybe the answer is like he was all in. And as it got scary for Moscow. Like Surovikin. Well, they found, they found some way to put pressure on him and force him. Some into, you know, relative loved one some somebody wasn't protected in that process but where he still has enough leverage that he's alive yeah <laughs> like if anything happens to be the envelope gets mailed to i don't know who it could be i don't know who it get mailed to oh i do have I'll say, yeah. the, the, the last i'll just say like to me the only the only upside here is um instability in russia is good for ukraine and so i'll take that as a positive yeah that's for sure by the way, I have I have something else I did listen to recently that I really liked. I want to share um, the the Wall Street Journal podcast feed. I guess occasionally does you know a series on this topic or that topic, and they kind of brand it within the feed as its own thing. So they just completed a little four episode run um, 
with great power. And it is a four-part take on the business of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How did, how did Marvel get into the film business? How did it become its own standalone studio? How did this become the highest grossing studio of all time? And, you know, wither the future of Marvel? It was really, really well done. I know a lot about the business history of Marvel because I grew up loving Marvel comics and I've always made a point of, of reading uh, things like, and I'm going to give the name of it here. The, the quite good uh, book called, uh, it, it's Sean Howe's Marvel yeah, Comics. There it is. Marvel, Marvel Comics by Sean Howe. Anyways, this is a really cool story. If you love the movies and if you love the characters in the company, it's, it's a great uh, one to listen to. You'll enjoy the fact that the general counsel of Marvel, you know, seems to have played a lot of role in all this, including roles beyond just managing the legal affairs. So that's pretty cool. So go check that out. Um, and Steve, with that, I think we're done. Um, amen, brother. Um, you have a topic, a title, rather. I, I, I think suck at Bobby Stores. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't putting that in there. Uh, I'll have to come up with something better than that. Um, something about. Uh, yeah. How about, how about, how about, the, uh, yes, we do have, yes, we do have tapestries. <laughs> yes, we do. Okay. I will find the actual quote for that so I can get it right, but that's pretty good. How about, how about we do have tapestries and you put little asterisks around do for emphasis. Yes, we do have tapestries. <laughs> we do have tapestries. We have many tapestries. And if oh, we have many start, tapestries. All right. The, the episode title, we have many tapestries. I mean, come on. That's just, that's just. That's too easy. Right. So just real quick, last thing on threads. You're staying with it? You're, you hold out hope? Because it's. I just can't stand to open it currently. I'll say this. I, I have not left Twitter yet, but I am going to post to threads at least for a little while, much more than I posted to any of the other Twitter alternatives and see what happens. If uh, Yeah, I just opened it to look and it's like, ugh. Somebody tweeting about Coke Zero. Someone talking about horror movies. Uh, what is this? Maybe you're right. Maybe I need to. Oh, God. It's just like the worst. It's like Facebook, and you don't even know who these people are. But, yeah, I mean, the idea the idea is that the more, I mean, again, right? We're, oh, we're I know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. He is at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. And I, and, and I guess I'm also at that on threads. I yeah, guess. Same here. I use the same handle. I always try to we're, go. We're at NSL Podcast, although not yet, I think, on threads for the podcast. Yeah, I, because I just don't have it. Until it gets better, that doesn't seem worthwhile. Um, and we will do better. We, we'll, we'll be back in fewer than 29 days. Yeah, I so. got a bet to win. Uh, you do have a bet to win. Um, until then, everybody, stay safe out there. Um, and let's go uh, National League. <laughs> Adios.